Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I'm your host, Stephen Pinecker, and I have the great honor and privilege to have a special guest on today by the name of Katie Langston. Katie, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. So Katie is the author of the book, Sealed, An Unexpected Journey into the Heart of Grace. And it's a wonderful book um, published by Thornbrush Press. And later on, I'm going to ask you about to talk about that press as well, because it's an sure. upcoming press. Yep. Um, it's a really good book. Uh, this came out a few months ago, right? Yeah, April 6th. Yeah. So, um, and this is just a, like I said, I just finished the book yesterday. I uh, heard your voice loud and clear. It was a great story you had to tell. So what we're going to do is we're going to delve into this, to this story. Now, Katie has an LDS background, mm -hmm. uh, but she is currently now in the process of becoming a minister um, in the Lutheran Church um, which in her branch is the Elka or Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. That's right. And just to educate the audience a little bit. Now, of course, I'm an evangelical and her yep. church has evangelical in the name. Yep. Uh, Hang on one sec. Yeah, no problem. You got to go out and you cannot come back in. Go. I am doing a podcast. Shut the door. Please don't come back. <laughs> this is, okay. folks, this is how it goes. This is great. Okay. <laughs> so that was a cute puppy, though. <laughs> oh, it's adorable. I love it. I love it. Hey, we're, we're not cutting that out. We're not puppies making it. In. We're just going to leave it. That's right. So, uh, but it's really interesting because I'm, you know, people like to say, oh, evangelical, Lutheran. And, and it's right. actually interesting just to, you know, we could talk a little bit about this. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure, my sure. facts here, but basically, um, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America is what you would call the main line of the Lutheran Church, the United States of America. Yeah. And, and it wouldn't necessarily, it has evangelical in the name, but it wouldn't necessarily be considered evangelical, correct? That's right. Yeah, it's, it's evangelical in the sort of classical sense of the term. So when, when the Reformation kind of was happening, Luther actually kind of ironically didn't prefer to call his movement the Lutheran movement, right? I think that the, you know, Mormons will understand that. Um, and instead uh, found the term, you know, use the term evangelical having to do with the good news of the gospel. Uh, and so that, that has stuck with the name of the denomination, even as in a North American sort of um, context post, you know, 19th century Great Awakening sort of stuff, you know, we're not necessarily evangelical in the kind of more commonly used sense of the term in the United States. And so it's just interesting, too, because, you know, the history of Lutheranism in America is quite fascinating because the evangelicals and Lutherans don't interact a whole lot with each other, uh, even in like, even like, for instance, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, which would be mm -hmm. more conservative and the Wisconsin yep. Synods, they don't really interact with evangelicals. And part of that has to do with the history of the 19th century, where a lot of Lutherans are going to Princeton to be educated, and they ended up becoming mm -hmm. Calvinists. And so oh, I didn't Church, know that. That's interesting. Yeah, there was a lot of them becoming reformed and Calvinists. So they decided we need to separate ourselves from the rest of American Protestantism. Yeah. And kind of do our own thing. So that's why sure. there's not a whole lot of interaction between our groups. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that about the um, uh, about the Calvinistic yeah. kind of yeah. streak. Uh, a lot of them went to like Princeton was the premier theological school, sure. and they ended up so they're losing a lot of their minister ministerial candidates that way. So that's huh. just a little background <clears throat> on Lutheranism in America and how it interacts with my branch of evangelicalism. Uh, Katie, uh, this book of yours. Uh, is just a wonderful uh, story. It's your story. 
And now you make a point at the beginning of the book to say that, you know, this is my story and others may remember things differently. And maybe mm -hmm. uh, you also said that you've taken some people and events and kind of maybe, you know, changed names or combined people. Just talk a little bit what the process was in doing that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like I mentioned in that, um, in sort of in that little introduction or author's note uh, at the beginning of the book, I think anytime you are writing about memory, you are in the process of remembering something, you're kind of recreating it. Um, and the way that you tell the story and the way that you recall the story or the way that you, um, have made sense of the story will impact, um, you know, the 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 particular things you choose to emphasize or how you 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 might tell um, how the you know the narrative flow or whatever. Um, and so and so I think part of memoir writing um, I discovered is you know it's as much an act of imagination as it is fact finding. It's as much about um, trying to sit with and make sense of, you know, your life experiences and um, see if you can find or form a coherent story out of them. And so um, I certainly don't claim to have the final word on it, except that it is my story as I, you know, as best as I can tell it now. Um, and, um, uh, and yet, you know, it, it's true in the sense that, um, you know, the, 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 the outline is true, the, the, the sort of basic chronology is true and, and, and really happened. And, um, and then also hopefully I, I, I was able to get at deeper truths of, you know, of, of the spiritual life of um, questions of belonging and identity and uh, faith and healing. And, you know, and so hopefully it resonates on multiple levels. So at the beginning of your book, you talk about a friend of your mom's named Edith, who was into neuro-linguistic programming. Yeah. And she had your mom do some things that at the time made you laugh. But in retrospect, you kind of could understand a little bit mm -hmm. about that. Talk a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think my mom in the story, at least how I tried to portray her, was um, was really sympathetic. But a person who, like all of us, was dealing with, especially when I was little, her own kind of crises and pain and trauma and that sort of thing, and and seeking um, healing. Uh, I, I mentioned she was a convert. Both my parents were actually converts to the Mormon Church. Uh, when they were adolescents, they met through their connections to Mormonism in New Jersey. That's how they that's how they became acquainted. Uh, my mom was, I think, 13. My dad was maybe 12 or 13 when they converted um, separately, right? My dad's whole family converted along with him, and my mom was the only member of her family to convert. Um, and, um, and I think part of the reason that she converted was because she carried uh, some pain and some trauma related to kind of distant and, and alcoholic parents. Um, and, and so when I was growing up, she was still carrying those scars and those wounds uh, and, and so um, was looking for ways to kind of make sense of and make peace with her own past. Um, and, and one way she did that was with this woman in the neighborhood who did sort of, you know, 
kind of healing type thing. She wasn't like a, a therapist, you know, credentialed in any way that I'm aware of. Um, but, but she would have her do exercises like comforting her inner child or, you know, imagining certain things, uh, imagining herself as a young girl and, and, and attending to herself in the way that she, you know, now looking back or, or then looking back, I guess, wish she had been. Um, and um, her, so the, the one I, I tell about in the book is, is, is a time when she, she was, you know, telling her inner child that it's okay and she was loved. And as a little girl, I remember thinking that was really, really silly. Uh, but then as I grew and of course had my own pain and, and traumas and, and fears to uh, reckon with, I realized, well, that, you know, actually, yeah, that, that's a sort of thing that we have to do. We have to make sense of and make peace with our childhood and our families of origin and, you know, the pain and the traumas that we, that we've endured and, and learning to go back and, and look at ourselves um, again through the eyes of healing, through the eyes of grace is, you know, is actually quite a gift. You know, early on in the book, you know, one of your earliest memories that you had was that you were sitting in the back seat of the car and you were doing something that your mom told you you couldn't do. And that was the first time in your life you felt a sense of shame about your body. Talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, like um, just this sense of, um, well, the daughter that just came in that I summarily dismissed. <laughs> she 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 has said she's tried to read the she's tried to read the book but because the opening scene has a scene of like uh childhood masturbation she says she got too embarrassed and couldn't keep reading which I think is Mom. yeah exactly she's like what the heck <laughs> um which I get because I was also 14 at one point but um anyway she um yeah so I mean something very normal something very natural you know but but um my mom sees it happening and is like don't do that like you can't do that um and and just from a very early age then I began to sort of recognize oh like my body can can be bad uh I can do things that are bad and wrong and not even know that I've done them um or not even you know intended to do anything wrong uh, and, and it, it kind of instilled the sense of shame and fear, um, from a young age, uh, just sort of this understanding that, um, you know, I would, might never be okay. I might never be, you know, pure or good or clean or worthy. You know, um, and we're going to get, we're going to go and talk about that a little later into the conversation. But I also think another individual in addition to your mom that looms large in your life is Grandma Ackerman. Mm -hmm. And maybe just talk a little bit about her journey and mm -hmm. your relationship with her because you were very close to her. Yes, um, she's definitely uh, a, a person who who has loomed large uh, in my life. And, and so my Grandma Ackerman was my dad's mom. Um, and she, along with my dad and their whole family, kind of like I mentioned earlier, converted to the LDS faith. And, and But she had been raised Methodist. 
um, again, out in New Jersey. Um, and I remember that she just always struck me as the fanciest, classiest, you know, person I had ever met. She was always like very well dressed and taught us to play the piano and taught us to have proper table manners, even my brother, which was quite a task. Um, and, uh, and always had, at least as, as through my child eyes, and she died when I was only, you know, 19, 20 years old. So somewhere around in there. So there are times I think, gosh, I wonder what it would have been like to like know her as I had, as I came into myself, you know, as an adult even more, but from my childhood perspective, she was just this sort of, you know, um, magisterial kind of, you know, presence. Um, and someone who always captured my imagination and even my, like my spiritual hope, uh, <laughs> because as I struggled at times with doubt and anxiety related to my faith, I looked at her and thought, well, but grandma's really smart and grandma's really awesome. And so therefore, you know, if she has a testimony of the LDS church, if she believes in all of these things, then, then I can too, and I should too, uh, because I, you know, I wanted to be like her. Hmm. Hmm. And we're going to get back to, to her as well as the story progresses. You know, within the uh, within the LDS church, um, mm -hmm. most children get baptized at the age of eight. Mm -hmm. And uh, you are not considered to be at the age of accountability until you turn right. the age of eight. Yeah. So at this point, the idea is, is that you are then... Um, your sins are forgiven. You're perfected at the moment that you're baptized. Right. right. Now, what was happening to you was you were starting to be very concerned about sin in your life and how you also you talk about how your mom had a little thing little chart where right. you know okay cleaned your room and made your bed and you were clean and right. that was cold for code for not uh, uh you know uh, masturbating and stuff like that so you're dealing with all this stuff and then you got this thing that's looming which is your baptism just talk about what what an eight-year-old seven eight-year-old is processing all this at that time yeah. Yeah. So I, um, you know, I, I took our, our faith, the childhood faith very, very seriously. My, my whole family did. My parents were and are remain extremely devout Mormons. Um, and, and, you know, we were, we went to church every Sunday. We did scripture study, you know, we did all the kind of things that you were supposed to do, even from the time I was little. And so I internalized um, a lot of that and, and, as, and thought deeply about it, at least as deeply as, as a child, I think, can. Um, and the way that I sort of came to understand it was like, okay, when I turn eight, then I'm on the hook for all of the things that I do wrong. Um, and as someone who had begun to develop kind of, you know, tendencies toward worry and anxiety and um, shame, 
that really scared me. Um, I remember thinking, again, the logic of children, you know, well, if, if you're, you know, if you're off the hook, if, 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 if you're not accountable until you're eight, then maybe it's better to like die before you turn eight than to turn eight and then all of a sudden be on the hook <laughs> for all of the things you do wrong um, and live with and have to try to deal with the consequences of sin and the shame and the guilt and that kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, I, I wouldn't say like, I wasn't like a suicidal kid, right? I didn't ever intend or think, oh, I'm going to try to execute a plan of some kind. Um, but I, I took it seriously enough that the, that the thought did cross my mind, you know, like, gosh, would it be better to die um, than to have to be part of, uh, you know, this, um, I guess, be accountable, I guess, for for my sins and, and um, try to make restitution for each and every single one. Hmm. And it's, uh, so you, you do go through the baptism and you mm -hmm. felt like wonderful about it, but then within 10 minutes of, of it, your little brother does what little brothers do and causes right. you to have an outburst and he right. tells you something. It's like, oh, you're you're already not perfect. Yeah, you've sinned. <laughs> you know? You've already sinned. And of um, course, that that weighed on you. Almost yeah. almost like it kind of ruined your baptism day. Yeah, it was like, dang it. <laughs> already. <laughs> and I should say that same little brother can still cause an outburst, even, you know, <laughs> 32 years later. So. That's great. That's great. So, you know, I, I one of the things that was interesting in your book was that you would uh, go back and talk about um, a little bit of the past of your family. Mm. So one of the first interludes where you do that is where you talk about uh, Mary um, Ann Foster and Mary Lacey, who are actually... Um, involved the Salem witch trials were victims mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. And I just want you to talk about how you feel that victimization that occurred way in the past reverberated generationally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it, it was important um, to me to look at um, my own family history as part of my journey, right? Like, uh, which is very Mormon of me. I had a friend, you know, um, tell me, it's so ironic that like after reading the book, he said, it's so ironic that you, um, you know, you had to make peace with your ancestors, which is something that Mormons taught you in order to leave Mormonism. Um, but I, you know, to me, that was part of integrating all the different aspects of myself and all the different uh, aspects of my worldview, not just the, um, not just the, um, uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, not not for necessarily the ancestor's sake, but for my own right to 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 be able to reclaim my sense of of who I who I am and who I have been. Um, so this particular anecdote um, is something that my mom found out pretty recently, which was that we had uh, we had ancestors on her side um, in caught up in the moral panic of the Salem witch trials. Um, and my imagination was just captivated by that, A, because, you know, it's such a, 
it's such a cultural touchstone it's such a cultural touch point you know for um for us we, you, you make references to it there's movies there's plays the crucible you know all this stuff we talk about it a lot witch hunt is has become you know like just common vernacular um and, and also then to think i wonder if or how you know this had something to do with the way that that my family has evolved i wonder if or how the pain of my grandmothers you know is continues to be expressed generations later um and uh and so that's a you know that's an exploration again of imagination i have no way of proving that i have no way of knowing for sure exactly how all of this unfolded and if or how the impact of that still ripples, you know, into our lives in the present day. But I was just captured and, and fascinated by the question and the wondering about it and the imagination of it. And speaking of the questions, you know, you throughout the book, you always have capitalized the questions. Yeah. And how um, it really, the, those were things that were really uh, tormenting you. Mm. And also, how I guess we could even kind of discuss a little bit about scrupulous scrupulosity uh, yeah. as we as we now understand is probably what you were dealing with at the time. Right. So just maybe talk about those two and how the, how how you see it now. Sure. Yeah. So we were kind of hinting at this a little bit ago when we were talking about you know the shame and the anxiety and the fear that I that I felt and the way that that really manifested itself was. Um, through what I kind of came to personify or think about as the questions, right, with capital T, capital Q. Um, and I, you know, the, um, so eventually, you know, spoiler alert, this is not really a spoiler, I, I've talked about this a lot, but eventually years later, I would be diagnosed, right, with obsessive compulsive disorder um, and scrupulosity is a religious form of that, but it's it's clinical, right? It's, uh, it's when the content of the obsessions and compulsions um, have to do with religion or morality, then it's called scrupulosity. Um, and the heart of OCD is um, doubt. It's called the doubting disease sometimes. Um, and Catholics actually have a lot of this <laughs> in their culture, I think, because it has to do again with the sort of obligatory confession ritual. I think that causes problems for a lot of people. Uh, and, and so Catholics for a long time have, you know, have identified this and, and can see it in parishioners and, you know, to a certain extent, probably not enough have trained their priests to like be able to recognize it and deal with it. But um, the best way to describe it is to say that um, this is true of scrupulosity, it's true of all obsessive compulsive disorder, that the, that the core symptom of OCD is a what if question. So if you take a classical sense, right, that the maybe one of the most commonly known OCD symptoms is someone who can't stop washing their hands, right? Why does the person who has OCD continually have to wash their hands? It's because they, the, they wash their hands, let's say they're about to eat, they wash their hands, and then the question comes into their mind, what if your hands aren't clean? And the weight of that question 
it becomes so unbearable, right? It's like, well, what if my hands aren't clean? And what if I have Ebola virus on my hands? And what if when I serve this, you know, dinner that I'm about to serve to my family, I, I make them all sick because I didn't wash my hands. So they go back to kind of try to neutralize the question, to try to neutralize the doubt that you go back over and over again and, and, and do these repetitive rituals, such as washing your hands again and again and again, in order to try to relieve yourself of that doubt. Um, so as, as I began to look at my life and, and realize and sort of put the pieces kind of came into place that like, oh, geez, this is something that I've been dealing with for a really long time. You know, I realized that my anxiety and my fear always came in the form of questions, the questions, the doubts. Um, and, um, and so, uh, and they were such an overpowering kind of presence in my life that it was, they, they had almost a life of their own, right? They were almost their own entity that, that fueled a lot of, um, that fueled a lot of the narrative action in the book and fueled a lot of the, you know, my own struggles and seeking and so on in my life. And, you know, and one of the things you kept on your prayer or mantra at this point mm -hmm. develops into, please forgive me of all my sins because you were so worried about you missing one of the sins that you forgot to specifically ask mm -hmm. for, that that became your mantra. Yes. Yep. And this is, uh, you know, as you talked about scrupulosity, how it does uh, seem to be something in high demand religions, yeah. uh, like Catholicism. And I was trying to think of like in my world, okay, do we have this? And then I started thinking of people throughout the years, like because we're evangelical, we want to go and save the lost. And mm -hmm. I knew people throughout the years as, all they could, they were obsessed with saving souls. Yeah. They were, they wanted, they had to go out and witness yep. and everywhere they were, right. they were at a restaurant, wherever they were all constantly doing it. And a lot of Christians like, wow, that person's really on fire for the Lord. But I look mm -hmm. back at it now and think, I wonder if that's a scrupulosity yeah. personality going on there. Yeah. 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 Absolutely could be. There was, um, gosh, there's a lovely uh, website called, I think it's called Mockingbird. Um, that's sort of like a Christian, um, arts magazine um and someone just wrote this really beautiful piece and um she shared it with me because she 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 mentioned my book in it which was an honor but she wrote this beautiful piece about how she grew up i think she had an evangelical background maybe i'll send you the link i don't know if you have show notes or something like that but i'll try i'll try to send it to you to include it in show notes yeah. and she talked about how she got in her head the question um of if she, you know, how Jesus says in, um, that they're the only unforgivable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And so she got in her head that she didn't know if maybe she'd committed the, the, un, the unforgivable sin. And that for years and years, she had that question, well, what if I did, what if I did sort of stuck, you know, as a, I think she called it like a, a continually skipping record where she couldn't, find any sense of peace or relief or surety that she that she hadn't committed the unforgivable sin um uh so i, I think it's everywhere right I, and even non-religious people can have scrupulosity like i i was you know as i've as i've healed and as i've gone to therapy and read books and done the kind of things that you do uh you know i read about someone who was like 
super anti-racist kind of person, like wanted to fight racism. And then they would have all kinds of like fears and anxiety that like maybe they were actually racist and they would have like horrible racist thoughts come into their mind, like unwanted thoughts and they would try to get rid of them and they couldn't and it caused them just a ton of distress. So anywhere you, you know, OCD is, is not a, a Mormon disease or religious disease or anything like that. Um, and, and anyone can have it, but I do think you're right, Stephen, that high demand groups, um, bring it out in, in very specific and unique ways. And I think, and this is not a stat, like this is not scientific, but anecdotally, when I compare notes with friends who were raised Mormon, right. And friends who were not, or who might've been raised say Lutheran and like seminary or whatever, you know, these are still highly religious people. Cause like, like if I met them in seminary or whatever, there's a lot higher incidents anecdotally with my Mormon friends that have told me, golly, I, I related to that versus like other folks when I've had conversations who said, oh no, I never had anything like that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that th- there aren't there, but I, I do think that high demand groups can, can sort of exacerbate um, that sort of natural tendency perhaps to worry and to anxiety and scrupulosity. So as this period, as you're getting a little bit older, your parents become friends with, as you call them, brother and sister Applebaum. Mm -hmm. And talk about the influence that they had over you and your family and how it kind of was disrupted you, your life and your family's lives. Mm. And these were old friends of my parents and not, it's not their real name. So you can't go look them up or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a pseudonym, but um, they'd been friends with my parents for, for years and years. Um, and started to get kind of into more like Mormon fundamentalism kind of stuff, right? And my mom tells stories about how they would um, have meetings, uh, you know, and it's sort of like, this was in the late 80s, early 90s, and they'd have meetings in, in the Salt Lake Valley where people who had seen revelations or had seen visions and had revelations would gather together and discuss like the coming apocalypse. Um, And my mom actually um, was more skeptical of all of this than my dad was, um, I should say that. And um, eventually even, I wasn't able to tell the whole story in the book, but sort of had more periods of sort of distancing herself from those teachings sooner than my father did. Um, but, um, but yeah, they got way into like, you know, like naturopathic medicine and like foot zones and what they called muscle testing and, um, super duper like radical right wing kind of politics, um, kind of conspiracy thinking. I mean, you, you even see some of this kind of thinking still alive and well, you know, like in like, say the QAnon kind of world, like, um, uh, but it had a very Mormon, it was a very, like had a very Mormon bent to it. Um, and um, I think they were radicalized for a time, my parents were. Yeah, and it got to the point that they took you out of public schools and started homeschooling right? you. 
Yep. And you were part of a group called the Kimber Academy where you would yep. meet up at. And so this was like a group that was uh, educating kids in a very conservative right-wing mm -hmm. um, political and uh, religious views. Just talk a little bit about your time at the Kimber Academy. Yeah, <clears throat> we had, um, you know, they, they had curriculum. They had like specific curriculum that had to do with, um, the, uh, you know, the, the Bible and the Book of Mormon and then the founding of the United States of America were kind of like all seen as part of salvation history, you know, and all of these things were like of equal weight. They, they, they seemed to thread them together in, in like, a, you know, into a worldview that, that said, um, you know, that the same God that, you know, that spoke in the Old Testament was the God who came to the Americas in the Book of Mormon, who was the same God who inspired the founding of the United States of America so that Joseph Smith could restore the church, right? And it was all sort of seen as this sort of seamless uh, narrative um, of salvation history. Um, and um, and they were very hyper literalistic in terms of how they interpreted the scriptures. Um, fundamentalist uh, kind of um, in the more classical sense of the term, right? So you've got like funda Mormon fundamentalism, which deals tends to deal with polygamy, but I mean this in the kind of broader sense of the uh, of 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 having a, a super literal let's say view of scripture or something like that. Like if Moses didn't write the five books of the Pentateuch, then like, what are we even doing here kind of stuff? You know what I mean? Um, and, so, um, and so that was a resource that they used and, and brought into homeschool. They, you know, we went to a few different classes and workshops later on when I got to be a little bit older, um, my brother, I think, went to a school that was using the same material, you know, but it was more like a private school, if I'm remembering it correctly. Um, you know, so they were, I mean, they were pretty, they were pretty, it seemed to me, they were pretty into it for a while. And then kind of what ended that whole situation was they, the the they the apple bombs were coming over to visit and stay with your family and you're excited that they were there because they had uh were going to be they were i guess thrown out of their house or they had a, mm -hmm. they were evicted so they stayed for a while and then something happened where uh, caused your parents and them to have a, a rift maybe talk about that yeah so it, it it they kind of came to light that they had you know that this family had started practicing polygamy uh, and so they had be become <laughs> fundamentalists in the, in all the senses of the term, in both the sort of broader sense and then in the Mormon sense of the term as well. Um, and, and that was a breaking point, you know, with my parents uh, that they were like this, you know, um, you know, they, I, they just, they knew 
that that was wrong um, to their credit, right? They, they, they were very clear. They never had a moment of, oh, maybe that's a good thing. You know, they were, no, they had never had a moment of considering that kind of lifestyle or anything like that. Um, and it proved to be a rift um, in that lifelong, right? Like years and years long friendship um, because, you know, of how to, to, to the, extent of the extremity to which that these folks had taken some of their kind of zeal their religious zeal so they ended up heading to a colony in mexico yes uh, you don't address it in the book but i'm just curious do you have, ever find out whatever happened to them well i don't i don't i did oh. yes and i don't want to give i don't okay. want to share too much Understood. um publicly but yep. um it's a wild <laughs> It's a wild story. It really is. Yeah. I can only imagine. Yeah. <laughs> I can only imagine. Um, so uh, you also start talking about how you wanted to start um, as you're getting a little bit older um, and uh, you want to start getting a little bit more involved in the church and you decide you want to start uh, doing the temple, uh, do the baptisms for the dead, for the dead as you're a young person. And uh, so you need to do the bishop's interview. So maybe just detail yeah. a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah, so um, so my first bishop's interview was, you know, I was technically 11 um, because I had not quite yet turned 12. Um, and uh, uh, and my and the temple trip they were doing the, the youth temple trip was coming up on my 12th birthday. So I was like, oh, this will be really cool or whatever. Um, and so that began sort of a lifelong like love hate mostly hate <laughs> relationship with bishops interviews um i should say that you know this this is one instance where i sort of combined different experiences into that that scene that i share with that that immediate that first bishop's interview like they were they all every single bishop's interview i've ever had has always been uncomfortable and i've hated every single one mm. um to be quite frank you know s s different questions that i got asked that i sh that i share in that scene are a compilation of things that i got asked mm -hmm. you know from in my youth as a kid um it didn't all happen like all in that one scene, but but it did all happen right from the time I was like 12 to 14 somewhere in there. Um, and just the sort of um, graphic sort of explicit sexual nature of some of these questions that I was asked as like a child, uh, you know, a, a young adult, um, you know, it was it was deeply traumatic um and it was something uh, and i've spoken pretty publicly about this uh before but it, it was something that that really impacted me um and it terrified me um and i always always my kind of ocd morphed <laughs> around that time my scrupulosity morphed around that time to be like am I gonna have to confess this to a bishop? Am I gonna have to go into the bishop's office and talk about this or this or this or this? And that became kind of the driving fear that I had. You know, I just, uh, 
what I like to do is I go, I like to go to like used bookstores and look for books and stuff. And I came yeah. and I, I specifically like to look oh, for yeah. Bibles and quads and stuff that have yeah. writing in them. So a couple of weeks ago, I come across this and this was a teenage girl, this huh. Bible. And she has in here the importance of virtue, the virtues of a virtuous woman and uh, writes down 10 different things and worthiness. And then virtue is the chiefest beauty of the mind, the noblest ornament of humankind. Virtue is our safeguard and our guiding star that stirs up reason when our senses err. Um, and then it says the single most important decision in your life is choosing who you marry. And then at the very back of this, somebody wrote in the book, a sister wrote, uh, you were held back for 6,000 years so that you could prepare the way for the second coming. Now, this was about 20 years ago. This girl yeah. was probably around 16 years old, I'd say, probably. And I sometimes wonder, okay, did she find her husband? Uh, is she still a Mormon? You know, that's why I like to have these because, and so when I, when I was reading your book, I thought about this quad mm. and just the, the journey that she went in. I mean, she, she underlined her scriptures. She put in uh, you know, little decals and pictures. Oh, wow. I mean, she I really, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I don't know, it just really touched me. And yeah. I thought about it. I thought about you and thought about her. So maybe yeah. talk, talk about maybe for a Mormon girl growing up, the pressures that are put on her about worthiness, chastity, and being pure for your, for the wedding day. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that is, that's really moving, Stephen. Wow, that's what a find that is. And yeah, I, I pray for her. I hope she's well. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think that Mormon youth of both sexes yet, you know, have pressures to be chaste and that sort of thing. I mean, I think I, that is one nice thing about it, I guess, if you want to call it that, like, you know, in some cultures it's like well the girls have to be like pure but the boys will be boys <laughs> and fortunately or not however you want to look at it like there's there's pressure for both boys and girls you know growing up mormon um but it, it you know at the time as you grow it just becomes so bewildering um and as a woman and as a girl you know, a little girl and then a young woman, you're, you're taught that you're kind of responsible for the thoughts and the behaviors of the boys that, you know, the boys still have the pressure to be like chased or whatever, but there is this like kind of sense of, um, it's harder for boys, therefore, as a girl, you know, you need to like help them stay pure by dressing modestly and being appropriate on dates and that kind of thing. Um, at the same time, your salvation in, in Mormonism depends on being married. So you have to be desirable enough to attract <laughs> the, the, the boys. So it always felt like this kind of impossible balancing act on a tightrope, right? Where you're like, ooh, am I like being too attractive? Am I not attractive enough? What am I doing? You know, and just already in a time when 
you already feel, you know, weird about your body and self-conscious and ashamed or bewildered or whatever, you know, that we all experience when we go through puberty, like just sort of adding that, that kind of particular pressure on top of it um, makes everything seem um, like extra mysterious and difficult to navigate and almost like impossible, like you can't do anything right, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, uh, one of the things, so once you decide, you got out of the Kimber Academy and you enter into the world of high school yeah. and you of course realize that you're very awkward, you don't know how to dress. <laughs> Not, if you ask my child, I, my, my 14-year-old, I still don't know how to dress, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but you uh, finally found a community in high school uh, yeah. that you really bonded with that really helped you come out and be able to uh, find yourself and find your voice, and that was with uh, doing uh, theater. Yeah. So talk yeah. about how the importance of theater played in your development and, and how much you enjoyed it at the time. Yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, I, um, I really got lucky in high school in that I had like, um, a, a really good group of friends. And I, I, I think I mentioned this in the book, like kind of like weirdly, weirdly diverse for Logan, Utah in the late nineties, you know, like they were, um, uh, I, I got to be friends with a lot of folks whose parents were say professors at Utah State up in Logan. Um, and so, you know, there were Mormon kids, but there were lots of different kids. There were, you know, so there was, we had friends who were Hindu or uh, Jewish or, you know, Presbyterian, which was very exotic for us. <laughs> you know, like all these, like, like different folks from different backgrounds. Um, uh, that I got to know in high school and particularly through theater. Um, and, and that was something uh, my dad had done theater when he was when he was young and even went to school and studied theater in college. Uh, and and so I'd been involved from the time I was young in like community theater and stuff like that. But in high school, I really began to um, to kind of want to pursue it as a more serious kind of artistic pursuit. Um, and so I, I, I got the chance to think about what would it be like to be someone else, right? Like, I think that's one of the gifts of theater um, is, is, is the ability to explore and to try to empathize with other people and get to you know, get behind, well, well, why would this character do this? Why would this character do that? I did a lot of Shakespeare actually um, in high school. And so, you know, <laughs> there, are, there are all kinds of characters in Shakespeare, uh, uh, you know, um, and not all of them are particularly good people. <laughs> and so being able to being able to think about, you know, oh, Lady Macbeth, like she's not a great person, but like she's really interesting character. And how do you portray, you know, a character like that? Or uh, I did Queen Margaret in from Richard III and it, just some of these other things. Um, and, um, and to begin to kind of just expand my imagination in a way that was allowed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, 
to, to have empathy and curiosity about other lives and people who were super different from me or had came from totally different time and place. Um, and then to like imagine myself as them enough to, 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 to portray that, to portray them. Um, there was something um, really mind expanding and, and world opening about that. There's a great story. I'll let the readers read it when they buy the book, uh, how you uh, at the Shakespeare competition. Yeah. And uh, it's a great story. And that was a really big deal in your life. And I thought that was yeah. a great story. Um, yeah. And you, you detail in your book about how you originally were going to go to the uh, University of Utah on mm -hmm. a scholarship, uh, on a theater scholarship at the school. And then you kind of ran into some conflict with your father, especially about mm -hmm. whether you should go or not. One, that you'd be leaving, and two, uh, the kind of environment that you would be exposed to as an actor. Yes. Yeah, so I don't know, like some listeners, if you're from Utah, you might remember this story. Um, Christy Flynn was her name, and, and there was a bunch of like um, media and press about it at the time where she had been accepted into the University of Utah's actor training program, which was the same program that I auditioned for and was accepted into. Um, and then she left the program because she had some, you know, she had said she wasn't gonna like say certain swear words or do certain things on stage. And the department, the theater department at the University of Utah at the time, were like, you have to, because that's part of the curriculum. And it created actually this kind of big lawsuit. I don't know if you've read up on that, Stephen, but there was like a big lawsuit and there were like NPR stories about it. And I remember news stories about it or whatever. And my dad was friends with, is friends with her, her dad, right? This, this girl, Christy's dad. Um, and he, my dad happened to have lunch with her dad. Um, and this was before any news about it had broken or anything like that. It was still just kind of going on, right. That the situation was ongoing and he, um, heard about what was happening and said to me, well, you, you know, you shouldn't go there. Like you can't should, are you sure you want to go there? Like, don't you have similar standards and, you know, you don't want to um, subject yourself to that kind of environment. Um, and so I remember, you know, that was, that was a blow. Like I was really <laughs> looking forward to, to going to college and to, to studying theater um, in a, you know, conservatory like environment. That's, uh, that was at least at the time, that's what the actor training program was. It was a relatively well-regarded program. Um, and, um, but, but all of a sudden I, I sort of, you know, bumped up against this, this conflict of, um, you know, what would it mean to be a Mormon person and an artist? What would it mean, you know, what would it mean for me and what kind of values do I need to bring with me? And, you know, how am I, how am I supposed to to think about this. And of course I still had some scrupulosity going on and, um, and some anxiety. Um, so I, I entered a period of discernment, you know, and um, ultimately decided to turn down my offer to the program. And some folks, um, some of my friends at the time thought that that was pretty absurd. Uh, 
and looking back on it, it probably was pretty absurd. <laughs> uh, and yet, even now to this day, even though I may or may not have a potty mouth these days, and you know, some of the conflicts that I had at the time, you know, would no longer be a conflict for me. Um, I still, I still look back at that period of discernment and look back at my life and think. Um, for entirely different reasons than I made the decision at the time. Like, I'm glad that I made the decision. I think that, you know, that, that, that God had a hand in that and that God was guiding me. Um, and, um, and that, um, and that it was the right decision, even if I'm not afraid to say swear words anymore. <laughs> oh, and there's, and just so you know, everybody, there's swears, there's there swears, some in, swears in the book. Yeah. So just to let, give you the, give you the heads up there. I told I was talking to my mom about the book. Yeah, and she uses the F word in here a little bit. My, I don't know why they have to use it. This is this is her story. <laughs> so, but uh, I'm sure you've heard similar things. So, but uh, you basically end up not going to school. You end up taking a job that's really kind of crappy. Uh, you yeah. end up going to Utah State and uh, going into their program because they had a slot open for you uh, yep. in the January session. Uh, you talk about your de detailing your times there. I did have a quick question. You said you like to go to the Village Inn. That was your favorite restaurant. Yeah. Oh, okay, so tell me. I've never time. been to Village Inn. What, what's, is it good? It's like bad Denny's. Okay. I'm liking it already. <laughs> so, yeah, we would go. You know, they were the only place that would, that in, like in Logan, at least at the time. I don't know. It's probably different now. But at the time, they were the only place that would be open past midnight. And so we'd get done with a show at like 11, you know. And then we'd have all this pent up energy. So of course we had to go to the village inn and hang out till two. That was just what you did. So, yes. so and you, you detail in the story about how you did a lot of things that college students would do, making out with guys, uh, right. kind of you, you, kind of separating yourself even from, from going, because you actually end up moving out of your parents' house and you get yep. an apartment and you start kind of just being living a little worldly, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe detail a little bit of that period of time. Sure. Yeah, it, it was. Um, it was a period of time where the the scrupulosity actually began to ease a little bit, um, which actually is not uncommon. Like a lot of people who have scrupulosity, I have found myself since, will say it comes on in childhood, it might recede in adolescence and early adulthood and then return. So I had um, kind of that experience where, um, you know, started getting involved in the theater department and you know, worldly is such a, is such a uh, loaded term. I mean, it was worldly compared to what I'd been raised with, but compared to like, you know, normal college students, it was still very, very tame. Um, <laughs> there, was, uh, there was no coffee even consumed. So <laughs> we're talking on a scale. Uh, it was, you know, uh, but yeah, I mean, I had a lot of, I had a lot of fun. We did really silly dumb things the way college students do and you know we um i should say the way like sober mormon college students do uh and and we you know we hung out till all hours of the night and i and i decided i would like at least choose some of the rules that you wouldn't have to confess to a bishop about i would at least choose some of those rules to break so I would watch, you know, R-rated movies, living on the edge there, Stephen, <laughs> you know, or like 
skip church sometimes, <laughs> you know, um, that sort of stuff. It was, it was fun. Sounds like it. Now, uh, after college, you, uh, at this time, um, you decided you actually you felt called to go on a mission. Yeah. Just talk a little bit about your experience on where you were called and kind of some of the things that you um, encountered on that experience. Yeah. So I, I served a mission to Bulgaria um, from two, late 2004, uh, 2002 to July 2004. So like December of 2002 to July 2004. Yep. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it was a singular experience. Um, I always say like, it was so formative and it, and it was so intense that I always say like, I would never do it again, but I would not go back and not do it the first time, if that makes any sense. Um, and, and I wouldn't, I actually wouldn't recommend it to anyone either. Like if people ask me, I say, I don't think, yeah, don't go on a mission, it's not worth it. Um, but, um, but it was deeply, deeply formative in a lot of ways. First, you know, in, in, in the one sense, my, you know, I had that little reprieve in college from the scrupulosity and it came back with a vengeance uh, as I was preparing to go on my mission. And then all throughout my mission, it was very, very bad. Um, and of course, I didn't have a, a word for it yet, right? I still didn't know what it was that I was experiencing. I still didn't know that that this was diagnosable. Um, and I just thought it was me. And, and so um, I had just devastating experiences of feeling shame and afraid and guilt and confessing the weirdest, silliest things to my mission president and like all this stuff, you know, um, just constantly feeling um, anxious and unworthy. At the same time, um, I think because you, of the nature of a mission where you're like out knocking on doors and talking to people about important things, about questions of meaning and God and life and, you know, love and those sorts of things, faith, um, you, you, you just do have profound experiences of grace. It's, 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 it's part of that, you know, conversations. And, I, you know, I only had a couple of people that I ever taught, like, become Mormons. And to the best of my knowledge, if, I don't think any of them are still Mormon, which from my standpoint now, I'm thankful for and I'm grateful that, that, that they're not, you know, the Eastern Orthodox churches over there are fine, go be Eastern Orthodox or whatever. But, um, but still just opportunities to connect with people, to talk to people, to hear about what was going on with them, to hear about their sorrow, their pain, to, to just be a presence um, to the extent that I was able to do that, which wasn't necessarily all the time. And I certainly didn't do it very well because I had an agenda for them. 
instead of just listening and, and wanting to be a presence of God's love for them, I wanted to like get them to do something. Um, you know, still had, still had um, experiences of, of grace and of beauty uh, in that. Yeah, so uh, that's a, definitely worth reading the chapter. Is and the, there's a lot of other interesting things that happened in there and in, 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 during your Bulgarian mission, and uh, you kind of came back to learn a lot about yourself and, and started, mm -hmm. you know, and that was good. And I, I just want to kind of talk a little bit now because now you're at that age that the the, the clock is ticking, and not getting any younger. That's right. And so I mean, like like our friend here with our quad, you know, she mm. got to find her man soon. Uh, you realize that you needed to find a husband as a yeah. good Mormon woman. So explain, yeah. just tell me a little bit about who you ultimately would end up with. Yeah. So, um, I came home and, um, and I knew, uh, I knew my, the person that I eventually married Lanny, my husband, I knew him, a bit before I left on my mission. This isn't in the book, so um, bonus content. <laughs> but, awesome. Um, uh, yeah, I knew him a bit beforehand. Uh, we had hung out a few times. He was in the theater department at Utah State. We hung out. Um, we had gone on one date, actually, like right before I left. He, we invited me over for dinner and we watched a movie guess who's coming to dinner with Catherine Hepburn and Sidney Poitier, mm -hmm. <laughs> which I don't know why that's what we picked, but it was. Um, and he had written me twice while I was on my mission. And uh, the first time he wrote me, he said, dear Katie, I haven't written you thus far because I had a really big crush on you, but now I'm completely over it so I can write you. <laughs> that was his first email to me. <laughs> and then he sent me another one. I don't remember what that one said. I just remember there were two. And that first one like made me laugh and then also made me kind of mad. Like, why would you stop having a crush on me? That's not, I don't understand that. Mm -hmm. um, so I came home and um, was super weird because that's what return missionaries are. They're like the weirdest and uh, so he waited a few months to ask me out until I had been become like a little bit more back to normal. Um, and we started dating in December of 2004. So yeah, I got back in July. We started dating in December. Um, he was not super active at the time we started dating. He wasn't a super active Mormon um, and hadn't really been in his life. Um, he, you know, was a bit of a, he was a bit of a rebel as a, as a young lad. Um, and I have awesome pictures of him with like jet black hair and like black, you know, like leather jacket. He was like a Gothic type when he was young. Um, but he wasn't when we were dating because that probably wouldn't have been my jam but he was willing to go back to church uh, and, and become active again. And, and, uh, and so we started dating and um, fell in love, got engaged as you do four months after we started dating and then married four months after we got engaged. So, you know, 
in Mormon terms, that's pretty long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it took six months for you to get pregnant. Right, exactly. Like, what's going on? <laughs> uh, so, um, so yeah, uh, but yeah, we got married and um, we just celebrated our 16th wedding anniversary one week ago. Oh, congratulations. Thank congratulations. You. Um, so, you know, as we fast forward a little bit into your marriage, um, you're starting to having starting to have issues with the church and mm -hmm. you're also um, just kind of a, in a real bad funk. And mm -hmm. somebody had recommended that you go see a gentleman by the name of Jerry Root, who's a C.S. Mm -hmm. Lewis scholar who was doing a lecture at Utah State. Yep. And something really, um, really hits you. And I, I want to read this statement because I think this is kind of like a very important turning sure. point in your life when you heard yeah. these words come from his mouth. Yeah. yeah. So you're standing, you're, you're listening to what he has to say. Mm -hmm. And then um, he says, I'm a Christian because I know enough of my deficiencies to be devastated. I don't think I could live without forgiveness and without the love of God. That turned your world upside down at that point, did it? Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, because I had, you know, my scrupulosity had gotten really, really bad on the mission. It came home. It was still really, really bad. It was really, really bad when we were engaged and dating. It was really, really bad after we got married. I got pregnant. It was really, really bad then. And it was, it was terrible. And it reached just this breaking point. And this is where I did start to have like some suicidal ideation and just some thoughts of like, it would be better not to exist because I can't guarantee that I'm ever going to be worthy and I never will feel worthy. I'll never be worthy. And it would, it would be better just not to be here. Um, uh, because I'm in, you know, deep trouble anyway. Right. And so, um, just experience profound feelings of despair. Um, when I heard this gentleman say those words and I had never heard faith explained that way before. You know, I had always heard you got to do everything you can, right? You do the grace, you do all you can. And then God's, you know, you grace makes up the difference that we're saved by grace after all we can do. Right. And I would never believed I had done all that I could. And you certainly, if you did have deficiencies, you certainly didn't like admit them like out loud or, you know, you didn't, you, you tried to change them. And if you couldn't change them, then you, you, you hid them because that was all that you felt like you could do. And, and, and here's this guy like standing up and saying, I'm broken and I'm deficient and I'm devastated. And I was like, me too. I am broken and I am deficient and I am devastated because I have tried and tried and tried and tried my entire life to be worthy, to meet these standards. And I never, ever feel like I am. Uh, and so I had an experience, um, you know, Martin Luther, uh, had a similar experience. Uh, he was also a, a highly scrupulous, you know, person, a, a young man as an Augustinian monk. Uh, and when he encountered um, God's grace in the, in the book of Romans, right, 
he, he talked about having entered, he felt as if he'd entered paradise itself through open gates. Um, and, and, and that was the sort of kind of revolutionary shift that I had around that time when I realized, oh, the reason I've been miserable trying to do all this is because I cannot do it and I'm not supposed to do it. Christ has done it already. God has already done it. And God in Christ forgives me and loves me. And I don't have to have all of this on my shoulders because he already took it. Um, and that was um, profoundly transformative. You know, as your story goes on, you know, you start researching Mormonism, mm -hmm. you end up moving to uh, Moscow, Idaho, um, mm -hmm. for your husband's uh, scholastic training and stuff like that. Um, you are getting yourself involved in the church there, the ward, local ward, and you have a kind of a progressive bishop that's able to kind right. of help you yes. in this process. Um, so for a while there, you were kind of doing the, I'm going to be a good Mormon, but I'm going to use this as a means of spreading the word of grace within my community. Yeah. And you had a situation where you were, I just talk a little bit about that because you, you, you talk about a time where you're, you're in a group with women who are devastated at all the trauma that they've been went through as women and the high expectations and then there was another room where another meeting was happening and it kind of caused something set off in, inside of you when you experienced it yeah the the stake was doing a um like a, a women's day right and and this was a student stake and we had married student wards and single student wards right these were university wards and so I was in the married ward and, you know, the, the, it was a Saturday kind of conference thing that they were doing, like a, a women's conference and everyone was mixed up together for most of the day. And, but then it, toward the end of the day, they divided us into married and single and the married, the married women went to a group where we where the topic of conversation was like marital intimacy. And the single women went into a group where the topic was chastity, right? And so in the, in the group I was in, you know, people were, it was, I mean, it was a cool stake and the wards were like, people were close in the, in this community. It was a, it was a tight knit community. People knew each other and were willing to be vulnerable with each other. And so to the credit of the people who organized it and whatever, folks were sharing like their like real pain and like, you know, I feel so ashamed and like, you know, I just, there's the, the different complexities and difficulties that they were having in their marriages, spe specifically related to sexuality and intimacy and those sorts of things. And kind of how the church had, and people were saying like the church like kind of taught us this and now we don't know what to do and now we're you know now we're really struggling blah 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 and i couldn't stop thinking about the single women in the other room that were hearing 
the same messages that had caused like all of this like sorrow and trauma in this room. And I remember this so like I I I I broke down. I actually like had a I like started crying and like shaking in that room and I wanted to like stand up and scream and be like what are you doing? What are we doing here? But I couldn't and I didn't, you know, um but that really just that moment of like just like I had so much cognitive dissonance, lots of cognitive dissonance over the years, right? Since I'd had that experience of grace and had been wrestling and trying to make sense of things and trying to make it work in so many different ways. But that was that was like it just tipped me over the edge where I was like, this is ludicrous, <laughs> you know. Um, and it, 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 the, the cognitive dissonance just sort of reached a boiling point where I couldn't ignore it anymore, where I was like, Ooh, this is like, what on earth are we doing? Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you had another interesting thing that happened was that you were at, you, you went to go hear, um, general authority, David Bednar speak. Mm -hmm. And then after he spoke, you approached him and what did you say? Well, I remember that his talk had been very much like, you know, this is what you do. And when you do this, then this will happen. And then, and so, you, you know, he had said something about how you don't have, you don't actually have agency because you've already given your agency to God when you've made covenants and all these things, right? Like it was kind of convoluted. And I remember going up to him afterwards and being like, okay, but like, what about the people that like you, you, you painted this like kind of box, but like, what about the people that like find themselves outside the box, you know? And I remember he like looked at me like I had two heads <laughs> and he was like, we'll just stay in the box <laughs> as if it was the simplest thing in the world, you know? And I was like, I don't, <laughs> but what if you're not in it, <laughs> you know, like, what if and I and and yeah, so it was not a very satisfying answer. Yes, I yes, I thought that really. I think he said something like, "Sister, stay in the box" or something yeah, like that. Right, right. It's like, oh, okay. Um, so, you know, it's this book is is just like I said, I'm I'm trying to go through this chronologically, and it's and and uh, it's just really interesting to see your journey. Um, you know, you even thought you could be a counter countercultural voice of grace and that kind mm -hmm. of thing. And then mm -hmm. as you're trying, you're starting to see you're taking this different path where you, um, I guess at one point you kind of basically uh, give a F you to, uh, to God at some point or your, your concept of maybe God that you had yeah. grown up with. Yeah. Uh, detail what led you to have that moment. I mean, it was around that same time as that sort of cognitive dissonance boiling over. Um, but I think it's, I, I do like the, the kind of F you, you know, to say it in, in, in those words was, it was like really clear to me that it wasn't to God, right? Mm -hmm. Because what had happened was I'd had this experience of grace and had, felt forgiveness and healing from God and kept trying to make that fit within Mormonism. And what I found was that it didn't fit very well. 
And so it was more to the church than to God. Mm. Like to me, it was very, very clear that what was wrong wasn't the love of God in Jesus Christ. What was wrong was the system that would put external conditions and worthiness and purity tests and loyalty tests and all of those kinds of things uh, around the unbounded, magnificent love and grace of God. And so it was very much, it was more like an FU to that system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was a very, it was a very powerful scene. Um, at this point, you then start, you're still on your journey and you start um, uh, encountering uh, groups like the Community of Christ and some yep. feminist Christians and stuff like that. Talk a little bit about your experience because you actually got to do things that you wouldn't have been able to do within the LDS church. And it started, started opening your eyes to what maybe would become your calling. Yeah. Yeah. I started ex exploring, right. A a a after that, I was like, I don't know, man, like this, I don't know if this is actually going to be able to like work, but I, my experience had been so profoundly spiritual and so like Christocentric, right. It was Jesus who, sa who saved me. It was Jesus who transformed my heart and my life. And so I started thinking, man, maybe I should check into other churches or other like, you know, expressions of Christianity to sort of see what I can figure out and, and see what's what. So I went to a bunch, you know, I went to like some like really conservative ones, I went to some more liberal ones. Uh, I found myself eventually at Community of Christ in Salt Lake City. We, we moved from Moscow to Salt Lake City in there. And um, I met, um, like Robin Linkhart, who was, she's now an apostle in Community of Christ. At the time, she was sort of on special assignment as a 70 um, to pastor the Salt Lake congregation. I met John Hamer, who is a lovely, lovely human and um, had some like interesting conversations with like Mormon feminists and like, like all kinds of different people. And I was just exploring i was just trying to figure it out like what do i do now now that i've had this experience of grace and now that i've kind of recognized that i that that mormon that, that the mormon church in particular just wasn't you know it was incompatible with the grace that i'd experienced now what hmm. And, you know, so at this point, you had never thought of this because it wasn't in your in the context of the faith tradition you were raised in. But some of your friends went to you and you said, you know, have you ever thought of be, about becoming a minister? Yeah. And that's when you started realizing that perhaps that could be yeah. your calling. Right. Yeah. Yep. It was something um, absolutely that I felt, you know, you don't have language for that as a Mormon woman. Um, even as a Mormon man, you don't really have language for a call to ministry because you just get the, you get your callings, right? Like there's no sense of um, discerning, uh, you know, what we call in Lutheranism as a, an internal sense of call as well as an external sense of call. But I began to experience both. I experienced both a, a, a tugging toward sharing the grace that the, the gift of grace that I'd received, the wanting to talk about and with people about faith and 
and theology and matters of meaning and ended up like having lots of interesting conversations with lots of different people, even started blogging on feminist Mormon housewives and podcasting and all kinds of things, like starting to have public conversations about this stuff, which I would, I would talk about as an internal call. Like I just felt like I needed to be in those conversations and, and then had the external call where people would like hear what I was saying and be like, you know, you, there might be something here, you know, like you're, you're pretty good at talking about this kind of stuff. And maybe there's something that, that you should be doing publicly. Um, so that began to sort of create a stirring of a sense of a call. Um, but it was still very much like, this is really complicated. Like I'm technically still Mormon. I'm still going to Mormon church. I, you know, I don't necessarily believe it, but you know, my family, what do I do? You know, what do I do? And so basically you end up this, as your journey ends up leading you to go to uh, Minnesota yeah. and you're there to actually study at two different schools. One's a, a, a Catholic and a Lutheran school with the idea yeah. that you're going to go and get like, get some theological training, but also maybe focus on uh, family therapy or family right. therapy or whatever counseling. like kind of right. family counseling yeah. and uh but you also as you're there after not too long you realize that eh, i think i'm gonna go and spend my time doing doing the theology thing yes and, and uh and of course then you had to break it to your husband about how yes. you were yeah so maybe detail a little bit about that <laughs> yeah so it was sort of like the last gasp like maybe if i do like counseling but i'm theologically like trained as well then i can just sort of be like a theological counselor i don't know is that a thing probably not but but i yeah i got into the program and i started doing the 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 therapy training first and it was interesting but i was like i don't know like do i really want to be a therapist it didn't it just didn't feel quite right so i took a break from that and went um and decided just to do the theology degree and just immediately knew that i was home um and, you know, I didn't know anything about Lutherans before I went to Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, nothing. I knew that the ELCA in particular, like, would take a Mormon because they had ordained women and did gay marriage. So I knew, like, they wouldn't be, like, super conservative, like, um, evangelical that would make you, you know, that, that that might not accept a Mormon person into the seminary, which I understand that. But, but that's all I knew about them, that, like, because they were, like, maybe a little more liberal, they would probably be fine with a Mormon, and that's why I went there. And, um, but the, the minute I started reading Lutheran theology and the minute I started reading uh, 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 Luther's biography, I was like, what? this resonated so deeply with me and gave me words to describe the experiences that I'd had with God's grace, gave me a theological framework in which to make sense of all the things God had been doing in my life. Um, and, and so I knew like, I had, I had come home. I had found the, the, the tradition in the place where God had been leading me, um, which was not welcome news, right, to my family. And it wasn't even necessarily welcome news to my husband who had, um, 
had always been, you know, from the time he wasn't super active, he'd always been like more lax and more liberal as a Mormon. And, and, you know, he, he wasn't, it wasn't that I was, you know, he was happy when he saw the changes that I'd had, and he was happy to see that I'd found peace and that sort of thing. But still it was like, hey, we got married as Mormons and we have kids now. <laughs> like, this is really complicating for everyone. Um, and what do you mean you're going to be a Lutheran pastor, you know? Um, but we, you know, we worked through that, um, got counseling, you know, talked about it. And uh, also I, you know, I told God at a certain point too, it's like, look, if, if this really is a call that you've placed on my life, you're going to have to make the way for it because I'm not only going to lose my marriage over something like this. So I got to have both. So you do it. And God did it. Hmm. God did it. You know, so as the story progresses, you decided to go and visit your parents who had since relocated to North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And you you had to deal with a lot of your past, of course, with your mom and everything that she went through. Your grandma Ackerman had passed away at this time as well. Mm -hmm. And so you have a lot of familial baggage mm -hmm. that you're kind of encountering mm -hmm. when you're in North Carolina. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, yeah, it was, it was just, um, this was really a period of, um, of integrating, right? Like there were all these different aspects of my life and my journey, um, my history, my trauma, my theology, my healing, my mental illness, like all of these things. And then this calling into ministry that they, it was starting to coalesce, but they all still felt really disparate. And there was still pain and hurt and things that hadn't been dealt with or um, confronted or named or, you know, healed. Um, and so that trip did bring up a lot of that you know, a lot of those feelings, and I won't give a spoiler as to the sort of, you know, there's, I think there's one scene in particular that, you know, that, that where some reconciliation and some healing comes. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, <laughs> I kept thinking, like, maybe I would, I was just done. I'm like, okay, now I'm done. <laughs> now I'm fine. And then something else would come up and I'm like, dang it, I'm not fine yet. Um, and that's just, you know, that it's, that's, I think that's, I, I've come to see that that's just sort of the process of healing. That's sort of the process of growth. And that's sort of the process of integrating all of our experiences to the extent that we try to like disconnect or deny pieces of ourselves or our experience. Um, th those things will will hang around and they'll haunt you in surprising ways. You know, it's uh, you, one of the things that's, you know, we don't have a chance to talk about all the names, but there were so many important women in yeah. your story, yeah. uh, whether it's, you know, theologians at the school or right. you talk about Reverend Dr. Fatima Saleh. Saleh, Fatima Saleh. Fatima, okay. Um, and she talks to you about like the concept of spiritual warfare. Right. And yeah. that you were going through at the time. So this is really a, a wonderful spiritual journey that you're going through. And you also start integrating prayer more in your life because there are many yep. times you're just not praying. Uh, right. And you start a prayer life as well. 
and it's just a beautiful story. It starts and, and it kind of builds up to the time where you decided I need to get baptized. Mm-hmm. And you felt that was important. Now within Lutheranism, they wouldn't necessarily require you to be baptized, but you felt in your heart that it was important that you get baptized. Maybe just talk yeah. about that. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the, the ELCA in particular doesn't have a, I wouldn't say they have a policy about whether or not Mormons should receive Christian baptism, um, but they do recommend it. And I, uh, you know, um, agree with that recommendation, um, even though at first I didn't think that I needed to. It was like, well, the baptism, the Mormon baptism is done in the name of the triune God, like even though they don't believe in the Trinity, it's fine. Um, but I, I, I kept feeling this pull, like you should be baptized like maybe you should be baptized, maybe you should be baptized. And so I ended up talking to um, a dear friend and mentor of mine at the seminary named Catherine Shepardecker. She teaches Old Testament and she's just a very wonderful person who's very dear to me and um, uh, yeah, has become just a wonderful friend and mentor. And um, and so I, I kind of talked to her about it and she was like, well, maybe look into it. And I don't need to get into all the theological reasons why uh, I think that that's the appropriate thing for for Mormons, converts to Christianity, why they should be baptized. I did write a piece about it in a Lutheran journal. If anyone's interested, I can share the link with you. Um, But the um, kind of the bottom line is that um, I felt this call that I needed to be and, and then was uh, baptized in October of 2017. Um, and the whole, my whole journey had been one of God's leading and of grace and of finding healing, but it really, really culminated in this new birth, right? In this, in this new birth that God gave me, uh, in, in, in the waters of baptism where the lingering disconnection with my body, the lingering uh, kind of disconnection with my past and you know, talking about trying to find integration and all of that stuff that was still out there and was still painful or whatever was washed away in the waters of baptism and was healed. Um, and I am a different person. I, I have peace. Uh, in my, in my soul and, and in my body, I, it's something that happened in my body, right? Uh, not just the mind or the emotions, but physically, I felt a physical change, uh, wash over me when the, when, um, when the water was dumped over my head, that's how we did it. Um, and, uh, I was, I was reborn as a new creature in Christ and, and named God's beloved child. And, um, and, um, and really sealed <laughs> the healing that had been ongoing uh, for over a decade at that point. So, you know, I just want to say, Katie, this was a wonderful book. I told your story. Um, 
and it was just a real it was a page turner you know and mm. i'm not i'm more like analytical like history and facts and stuff sure. and this is a yeah. memoir but i i uh I'm, my mom's gonna read this i told her there's there's swears in it but you're gonna love this book mom and i think it's a wonderful story that you yeah. told katie and i want to thank you so much for sharing that with us i i just wanted you to talk a little bit about thorn bush press sure because this seems like a kind of a cool new publisher that you might want to tell everybody about yeah i'd love to plug thorn bush press so um a wonderfully brilliant Lutheran um, theologian named and pastor named Sarah Hinlicky Wilson. Um, she has for years, she's an ecumenist and she's a prolific writer. Uh, she's for years edited um, Lutheran journal called the Lutheran Forum. Anyway, um, she's a PhD uh, theology, systematic theology from Princeton. Anyway, she was looking at the landscape of theological publishing and said, we are too, it's either too academic and it's dry or like some of the pop kind of offerings are not, you know, robust enough. And so she was like, there has to be this space for like, um, thoughtful, creative, um, um, uh, artistically, you know, um, appealing and interesting uh, theological writing. And so she launched Thornbush Press and, and so she's published, um, she published my memoir. She's got, she's got a couple of books that she's published through there. One is this like, it's called Pearly Gates and it's this wonderful collection of parables of people approaching the pearly gates and, you know, after death and, and uh, it sort of, it, it reminds me a lot of like, say, C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, which is these like interesting imaginative anecdotes, um, because she's, her whole thing is like theology and faith and these sorts of things are, are, are best expressed through are often best expressed through story and creativity and through artistry and not like just dry, boring academic writing or like kind of watered down self-help. And so she's trying to like carve this space for um, theologically informed uh, literature that, um, that communicates the gospel on multiple levels. So she, you know, she read my manuscript and she encouraged me to, um, send it out to some bigger publishers. And I said, yeah, but I think that A, I really love this idea of the venture that you're doing and B, I want more creative control over the, the manuscript and C, I'm guessing you'll give me more money, right? <laughs> In terms of the cut on the back end of the, of the royalties. And she was like, well, yeah. So I convinced her to publish it for me. You know, Katie, it's just so awesome to have you on. You know, it's so funny how a couple months ago I was doing my weekly two-hour call with Dr. Christopher Thomas, who wrote the book of Pentecostal Reads, the Book of Mormon. Oh, yeah. And I yeah. went to him and I said, Chris, I just realized I haven't interviewed a single female. <laughs> and, and at this point, we were just starting to get, get it together that I was going to interview Sandra Tanner. Oh, but, cool. But yeah. so I was like, okay, this is great. You know, of course she did come on a couple of weeks ago, but um, he sends me, well, here, let me send you a link. Oh, okay. And he sends me from the religion news service article about oh, yeah. you. Mm -hmm. And I thought, 
Oh, Christopher, that's so nice of you. You think um, my channel is that big. It's going to have somebody like Katie to come on my program. <laughs> <laughs> and now, you know, I'm, at, I'm under interviewing you. And it was so cool how we met because you uh, actually found out about my channel via watching my interview with John Hamer. Right. And I thought that was so cool that you were going to reach out to me as anyhow and set something up. So I, I just thought, I was like, oh, I've arrived. You know, authors are finding out about me before That's I That's right. There you, here you are. Here That's I am. Awesome. Yes. So either way, I just want to thank you, Katie. You know, this, this book is a fantastic book. There's so much we didn't cover in here. Um, we did cover a lot, which I'm glad we did. And you got to tell your story, but there's so much more to it. So I heartily recommend that you go out and buy this book. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to provide links in the description so you can purchase the book. And I'm also going to provide some links uh, uh, that she's that you'll be sending me uh, that yes. you had referenced in the interview. Yep. Uh, so you can check all of that out. I want to remind my subscribers to like and subscribe, leave your comments in the comment box. And uh, please tell your friends and family about the channel. It's growing and help it grow with us. And so, Katie, awesome. thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks, Stephen. Thanks for having me. It's been a joy. Uh, thanks again. Have a great day.